Hey everybody, this is Ayo from Amid Swan Time Study, a podcast that focuses on apologetics, Bible studies, and current events from a biblical perspective. Thanks for tuning into this episode. On today's episode, I want to focus on a topic that's of great interest to me, which is the flood story in Genesis. In my experience, the flood story in Genesis is one of the main things that skeptics and atheists grab onto in the Bible in terms of making an argument against the Christian faith. And it's something that I've gone a lot myself if I want to argue for the Christian faith, if I want to argue for the reliability of the Bible or, let's say, the loving nature of God. The first thing an opponent of the Bible might say is, if your God is so loving, then why would he flood the whole world in early Genesis? And that's just an idea in the Bible that they grab onto to basically argue against the loving nature of God. And the flood story in Genesis is one of many examples where we do see God just wipe out whole groups of people. And that's just a thing that many skeptics, many atheists grab onto to say, if your God is commanding this, basically committing what we'd say is genocide, then why should I then become Christian? Why should I believe your God is a God of love? And this is a question that your average Christian might get. And if we don't study the Bible well, we kind of pause on it and we don't really have a good answer. And for the Christian too, it's also a question that challenges us because we also look at the Bible and we see this God of the Old Testament and we see this God of the New Testament, which is a God of love and the God of the Old Testament, which is a God of like anger and revenge, where he killed these people for what seems to be no reason. But then in New Testament, we see this dichotomy where there's this suddenly a God of love where he's saying, okay, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to forgive your sins. And we just have a hard time reconciling those two different gods, quote unquote. So I believe that by asking this question of what's going on in this Genesis story of this flood, what does it really mean, really helps us not only face critics that oppose the Bible, but also helps answer questions that we have for our own faith. So before we start this study, I'm going to encourage you to grab a notebook or maybe just be ready to type some stuff down in your phone because I'm going to throw a lot of verses at you. Yes, I will be making a case for what I believe to be going on in this flood story, but I also want to challenge you to do your own research after this. I want to challenge you to take notes, note these verses down, and do your own research, go in the Bible, and figure out the answer for yourself and use this episode as a backdrop to start your own study. So let's start with Genesis 6 verses 1 to 2. Let's see what's going on in this flood story. Let's see what causes a flood to happen and what caused God to want to wipe out all life on earth. So Genesis 6 1 to 2 says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So Genesis 6, 4 says, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those are the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So Genesis 6, 4 expands upon what we just read in Genesis 6, 1 to 2, that these sons of God took wives of all they chose. And we see the outcome of Genesis 6, 1 to 2 and Genesis 6, 4. Genesis 6, 4 says that there were giants on the earth in those days. And those giants came from the sons of God cohabiting or reproducing with the daughters of men. So the question we should have here is like, okay, hold up. What's going on? Who are these sons of God? Who are these daughters of men? How is it that these two groups can basically come together and reproduce and create giants? Whether you believe in this story or not, whether you think it's crazy, it should still cause us to pause and ask this question. So going forward, my goal here is to answer the question of who are the sons of God? Because this is going to be really key to seeing why this flood happened. And to be honest, I'm going to make the claim that 
the flood that God brought onto the world needed to happen. And why we'll see that need is because of these sons of God and who they are. Before I even start explaining who I believe the sons of God to be, I'm pretty sure that many of you may already know where I'm going with this. Some of you may not even be familiar with what I'm going to talk about. But basically, I believe that the sons of God are fallen angels. Now, for some of you that aren't familiar with this idea that the sons of God are fallen angels, you might think, what's this dude saying? This dude is crazy. Because this isn't something that you'll hear in your regular Sunday service at church. This isn't something a lot of Christians know about. I've got this idea myself from my own personal study and just found it in the Bible. And I will present to you a lot of verses that I believe are pointing to this idea in the Bible. So at first it does sound crazy, but I ask that you stick with me for a moment and listen to these verses and you'll see where I'm getting this from. The next couple of verses I'm going to be looking at to support this idea that the sons of God in Genesis are indeed fallen angels is from the book of Job. Job is a guy who was wealthy. He was also an upright guy that followed after God. So we get to see this earthly scene and a summary of Job in the first couple of verses in chapter 1 of the book of Job. Now, after the first couple of verses, we get a shift in the story and we see a setting taking place in the heavenly realm. In Job chapter 1 verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So just like Genesis 6, we're seeing this language of the sons of God. We're seeing this group of beings called the sons of God. And obviously here we can see that these guys are angels because Satan, or better known as Lucifer, was a anointed cherub. So if we're seeing a story with the sons of God presenting themselves with Satan, and we can see this idea again being repeated in Job chapter 2 verse 1 where it says, Again, there is a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. So what's going on here is that we already got an introduction to Job. We already see that he's a wealthy guy. He follows after God. And the reason Satan is presenting himself before the Lord, before God, is to basically question God and say, hey, this Job guy that you like, this Job guy that you're so proud of, he only likes you, he only follows after you and does what you want because you have this edge of protection around him. Because he follows you, you basically give him what he wants, you protect him, you bless him. But what happens if he doesn't get what he wants? What happens if he gets sick? What happens if things are taken away from him? Will he still follow you? Let me show you that. Let me show you that he won't follow you if these bad things happen to him. So after Satan makes this case to basically do harm to Job, God gives him permission and says, hey, you have the power to do that. Part of the reason we can be confident and say, yes, Satan does have the power to do this is because in the Genesis story, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they basically gave the keys and the reign and the power of the earth to Satan. And we can see this especially highlighted in uh, Matthew when Satan takes Jesus up to a mountain and says, hey, all these kingdoms will be yours if you just bow down to me. In that story, we don't see Jesus say, uh, actually, you thought wrong. These kingdoms aren't yours. But Jesus doesn't doubt that. He knows that those are his kingdoms. So currently, this world is being ruled by Satan. The Bible calls him the god of this world. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. Satan is the god of this world. He has authority over it. He has authority to do things. And the Bible also calls him a lion that's prowling, seeking who to devour. So this is just an example of that. But usually in the Bible, what happens is that we just see things happen to people. We just see an earthly perspective. But the Bible is giving us a rare point of view into the heavenly realm to see how these things are beginning to happen. So again, we see something else going on in Job chapter 38, verse 4 to 7, where it says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To where was its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So what's going on in Job 38 verse 4 to 7 is that after all these bad things started happening to Job, his daughters and sons were killed, he lost his possessions, he began to get sick, his friends actually came and said, hey Job, why are these things, bad things happening to you? You probably did something against God, you wronged God. But earlier we see that Satan basically testing him, trying to prove a point to God, which obviously Satan is wrong here. Job, we see that, continues to stay righteous to God, and he does get rewarded in the end of the story. And by the end of the story, he does get back his possessions, he does get more children, more possessions, and he's even richer than how he started off with. So that's basically the end of the story to wrap it up. But here, what's going on is that Job, during this period of time between Satan going to heaven and asking to test Job and him actually being tested, we're seeing a Job that's lamenting, that's being sad, that's saying, God, why is this happening to me? What's going on? I've served you, but all these bad things are happening to me. I lost my kids. I've lost my possessions. What's going on? So God, in this, he actually approaches Job and he basically challenges him. He doesn't even answer Job's question. He basically says, okay, smart guy, if you know everything that's going on, which Job doesn't, well, where were you when I created the earth? And that's the example that God is giving Job here. He's saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So he's basically telling Job, if you're so smart, if you know everything that's going on, tell me, how was the earth created? So in this example, we see that it says, to what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So in this example of God challenging Job to say, what do you know about creation if you're so wise, if you're so smart, why are you questioning me? We see something piquing our interest here, which is the mention of the morning stars and mention of sons of God, again, which are angels. Now you can be confident in this interpretation because God is talking to Job about creation, the creation process, and these morning stars and these sons of God shouting for joy, seeing God's act of creation. We also know from the Genesis story that humans weren't created until after the earth was created created. So there's this gap here. So we know that the earth at least has to be created first and then humans were created. But even before the earth was created and God laid on the foundations and did all that, which he asked Job about, we see that there's these morning stars who sang together and these sons of God who shot it for joy, which we also saw in Genesis 2.1 and which we also saw, or sorry, uh, Job 2.1 and Job 1.6, these sons of God. So you can take this back and say, okay, if we're seeing this continuous theme of sons of God in Job, sons of God in Genesis, we can start relating this to the same idea of angels. We can start seeing how in the Genesis story, the sons of God actually could be fallen angels. But this isn't where it ends. In my opinion, this is where things start getting really interesting. We've seen a couple examples of the sons of God in Job in the Old Testament. But now we, there's also examples of this idea of angels in the New Testament as well. They're not really named specifically sons of God, but there is this idea in New Testament in places such as 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 and Jude chapter 1, 6 to 7, of these angels who somehow sinned in the past, and because of their sin, because of this horrible thing they did in the past, God is reserving them for punishment. And we're seeing this idea in the New Testament, and in my opinion, it's mirroring what happened in the Genesis flood story. So Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 5 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. 
And Jude chapter 1, 6-7 says, And the angels who do not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So here we can see in Second Peter and Jude that there is mention of these angels who sinned, these angels who got cast into hell. And we're seeing something in Jude too of these angels who did not stay in their proper domain. Now, besides Jude and Second Peter, there's no reference to this anywhere else in the New Testament, at least as far as I know, and I encourage you guys to, again, search this out yourself. But there's no other mention of this, not only in New Testament, but in the whole Bible. There's no mention of a group of angels who somehow sinned and they're being kept in eternal chains of darkness for what they did. However, Genesis 6 does give us this context of angels who left their abode, who did something, who sinned, and because of what they did, they're punished. And I believe that the hints here in Jude and 2 Peter of why we can relate this back to Genesis 6 is because of what they're using to reference these angels that sinned. So for example, 2 Peter talks about these angels who sinned and God cast them to hell and reserved them. And it's interesting because 2 Peter, it basically references the angels who sinned and connects this idea of these angels to Noah. The question we should be asking ourselves here is why is it being written in 2 Peter, these angels who sinned, who God cast into eternal darkness, waiting to be judged? Why is this being referenced with the flood story Noah and Noah being out of the eight people who were saved from this flood story? Again, we're seeing this similar idea in Jude 1 verses 6 to 7 where these angels who left their proper domain and they are being reserved under chains of darkness just like second peter says and it's being referenced here in jude that these angels who sin left their proper domain is being compared to with the sins of sodom and gomorrah the sexual it literally says sexual immorality so it states blatantly there that sodom and gomorrah had sexual sins had sexual immorality and that's what god judged them for and we know that story from genesis so it's relating this sexual sin here of sodom and gomorrah to these angels who left their first abode. And in 2 Peter, it's relating these angels who sinned and left this first abode to the flood story Noah. So I feel like these two passages here is giving a direct relation to the flood story. It's pretty simple, in my opinion, to what it's saying here. So Job, these verses in Job and Jude and 2 Peter, I believe is giving us an even more complete idea of who these sons of God are from Genesis. We also have to keep in mind too that Ephesians 6.12 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against powers, principalities, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Basically that verse is saying that this natural world is not all we see. That there's demons, there's fallen angels, and of course there's Satan who want nothing more to, than to destroy the human race. And that's the real war. That's the struggle we face everyday life. That what's going on in life, the violence, the anger, the strife that humans face, there's a spiritual undertone to that. There's a spiritual origin to that of what we're seeing in the physical realm. And we're seeing this really manifest and take place literally in the Bible when we're seeing things like in Genesis 6 of fallen angels literally mating with human women and from that producing giants. And I think that when we start understanding what's going on here, this flood story starts making more sense. It's not just a story of an angry God that wants to wipe out the whole world and save eight of the people he likes because the whole world is sinning or doing bad things. But it's a story of these fallen angels who somehow rebelled against God and left heaven, left their first abode, to intermingle for some reason with human women creating giants. And we know in this flood story that, or before this flood story, that because of what happened, because of those giants, 
all flesh on earth was corrupt. And that's a pretty interesting statement. We have to really take it for what it's saying. So it looks like this is a, from my opinion, this is a genetic problem. This is a DNA problem because we're having here uh, fallen angels mating with human, creating these half human, half angel hybrids. And from that, God is saying that all flesh on earth is corrupt. So we'll, we'll talk more about this idea of genetics and tampering of the bloodline in the next part of this episode. But for now, I just want to say that we're starting to piece this together. We're starting to see why God flooded the world and why this is making more sense. And like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast too, there are in fact places in the Old Testament where we'll see God command the Israelites to wipe out whole villages and they commanded not to save the men, not to save the women, not to save cattle, not to save the children, just wipe them all out. And again, when we see that, we're thinking to ourselves, how could God do that? That's genocide. How could he just command his people to wipe out innocent people? And sometimes us Christians have a hard time uh, rationalizing that or giving an answer to that. But again, we need to understand that what's going on in Genesis' flood story isn't just a simple story. From this story comes the whole uh, backdrop of the whole Bible, basically. From this story, we see uh, starting a spiritual warfare that spans the whole period of human history, basically, to the end of the Bible. So when we see in many places in the Old Testament, such as 2 Samuel 21, 16, or Numbers, we get to see the descriptions of many groups of giants called the Hittites, called the Perizzites. They're also called Rephaim. Even in Genesis 6 story, those giants there are called Nephilim. And we get to see other groups called Zamzumim or Anakim. And there's many other places in the Old Testament where it talks about how some giants have six fingers and it talks about their weapons and their spears and how heavy they are. So it gets pretty specific in terms of details about these giants, these giant clans, these physical features of the giants, what weapons they use, and even like what a giant king slept on. So this was in fact a problem for the people in the Old Testament of the Bible. And something else we need to think about as Christians is if we are going to say that the Bible is truly the Word of God, that what the Bible is talking about literally happened, such as the prophecies, such as over 300 prophecies of the Messiah, of Jesus' first coming, that they were literally fulfilled and the prophecies concerning his second coming will literally be fulfilled amongst other things in the Bible that happened. If we're going to say that, yes, as Christians, we believe that what the Bible says actually literally happened, then shouldn't we ask ourselves if this flood story is real, would we we not see evidence of this in the real world. We know that if we look at different stories in different cultures and religions, there is a lot of stories about a global flood of people being saved out of this flood. The numbers might not be exact, but in many cultures, hundreds of cultures and different belief systems, there's just a similar flood story in these belief systems. And also, if we look at Greek mythology, for example, there's a bunch of stories about these gods, these demigods, these gods coming from the heavens, coming mingling with men and producing half God, half human, hybrid, either sons or daughters. And we know that from the Greek mythology, Greek mythos. So we should be asking ourselves, is this really a myth or are they getting this story from actual events that happened in the past? And what I'm saying here isn't that the Greek mythology itself is true, but that they're getting these ideas from something. The Bible tells us of these fallen angels coming down from heaven, intermingling with human women producing hybrid beings. And now in Greek mythology, we get a similar story of these gods coming from the heavens, reproducing with human beings and creating these offspring that did amazing things that are heroes. Also, the Bible makes it clear that all flesh on earth is corrupt. 
So why is it in Greek mythology we see centaurs and we see these the half-human, half-animal hybrids or a hodgepodge of different animal parts and different animal beings coming together to create different beings in Greek mythology? So whether those animals or where those beings are real or not isn't really the question I'm asking or isn't what I'm posing to you, but basically the essence of what I'm asking is if we're going to say the Bible's real and this flood story is real and the owl flesh was corrupt and God wiped it out for a reason, should we be surprised then if we see other cultures having their own flood stories? Should we be surprised if we see Greek mythology basically mirroring this story in Genesis? So I think up to this point, I've laid down a solid foundation of why I believe that the sons of God in Genesis are in fact fallen angels. And I've gone to look at the past, look at Old Testament. We've gone to take a look at the New Testament to kind of piece things together in the Bible. And if we want to look at deeper truths and search for deeper meaning behind what's going on in the Bible, we have to do these things. We have to go around and piece these things together because for the most part, the Bible doesn't just lay out the answer for us. If we really want to search for these truths, if we really want to get to the bottom of these answers or these questions to pursue these answers, we have to be diligent and be able to study this out for ourselves. So we can see that these events happened in the past. They happened a long time ago in Genesis during Noah's time. But in fact, another piece I want to look at is Bible prophecy and how it fits into Bible prophecy. Because we might be surprised what the Bible is saying about Noah's time and how it might relate to our time period. So the general question for this is, why should we care? Why should this concern us? This is a story of the past. Okay, cool. We understand why the flood happened. Let's move on to the rest of the Bible. But in fact, if we continue digging deeper, we can see that there's a cause for concern that we should actually be paying attention to this in terms of what happened in Noah's time period. The first passage I want to take a look at that exemplifies this fact is in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. In Matthew 24, the disciples basically come to Jesus and say, we want to ask you, what will be the signs of the end of this age and the signs accompanying your second return to this earth? And basically, Matthew 24 is Jesus giving them the plethora of signs that will accompany the end of the age. And he gives them wars and rumors of wars, false prophets, deception, basically many things that us Christians are already familiar with in terms of the end times. Those are the end time signs that a lot of people flock to when they want to talk about Bible prophecy. So in Matthew 24, verse 37 to 39, Jesus basically says, But as the days of Noah were, so also the coming of the Son of Man be. He continues in the rest these verses talking about how in the days of Noah they were eating and drinking until the flood took them. So basically what he's saying in this passage is that just as in the days of Noah where they were just going about regular life, marrying, giving into marriage, eating and drinking, not paying attention to the signs of the times, sudden judgment just overtook them despite them being warned. They just went about things like normal. So like the days of Noah, the days before the Lord's return will also be the same, where people are going about everyday life. They're being warned, but they don't expect anything to happen, and then suddenly judgment overtakes them. So that's the immediate context of that. But as we were looking at Genesis 6, we know that something else was going on in Noah's time period, which is that the sons of God were mating or reproducing with human women creating giants. And Jesus says that just as it was in the days of Noah, so also the coming of the Son of Man be. And that should be something we're really thinking about. And if you believe that I'm kind of overreaching here with that, if you think that, well, that's not really the context of what Jesus was talking about, he wasn't really talking about fallen angels reproducing with human women in our time period, well, then let's take a look at Daniel 2. So in Daniel chapter 2, it basically covers King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In Daniel's time period, there's a king called Nebuchadnezzar that has a dream about this statue, and he doesn't know how to interpret it. 
This statue has a head of gold, its chest and arms are silver, its stomach and thighs are bronze, its legs are iron, and its feet is iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar is gathering people, asking them, what's the interpretation of this dream? I don't know what it's about. Eventually gets to Daniel. He's like, Daniel, interpret this dream for me. And Daniel interprets the dream for him. And those different, the statue with the different layers of colors and different layers of materials, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron and clay, represents various kingdoms throughout the history of the world. And what happens with the last kingdom, which is the feet, which is iron and clay, it represents the last kingdom on earth, which will be the Antichrist kingdom, which is still yet future if we're talking about Bible prophecy here. That is still yet to come, and then it's destroyed by a stone cut out of a mountain without hands. So that stone cut out of a mountain without hands represents Jesus' millennial kingdom. So after the Antichrist kingdom, Jesus returns back on the earth, puts an end to the Antichrist, the false prophet Satan, and sets up his millennial kingdom on earth, which he will reign forever. So during Daniel's recounting of this dream or, or the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar of what this statue represents, we go to Daniel 2 verse 43 and we see that something interesting is being said here. And I believe it can go back to Matthew 24 verses 37 to 39 of this last kingdom and what's going on here and how this basically goes back to Genesis. And then we can use these verses to say that Noah's time period will mirror our time period or the time period to come. So Daniel 2 verse 43 says, As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. So when we look at this verse, we have to remember the immediate context of it, which is King Nebuchadnezzar's statue represents the different kingdoms that have already come and gone, and a kingdom yet future that will come on the earth, which is the Antichrist kingdom, which will have its domain on the whole world. And this kingdom, which is represented by iron and clay, will be mixed with iron and ceramic clay. That's Daniel's interpretation of the dream in Daniel 2.43. And he makes an interesting statements saying that they will mingle with the seed of men. So the question here for us should be, who is they? And why is they being separated from men? Why are they separate entities from men? And what, what's going on here with they mingling with the seed of men? Why is that being shown to us? So this is something we really need to ask ourselves that, what's going on here in Daniel 2? verse 43. And again, we can go back to Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39, where Jesus says, as was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And again, what was going on in Noah's time? Yes, they're eating and drinking. Yes, they're going on about life, not giving a care to the world and what's going on, and then judgment overtook them. But again, something else that was happening was that fallen angels were reproducing with human women, creating giants. And then Jesus tells us that just as what was going on in Daniel's time will also go on in the time preceding the Lord's return. And with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, which Daniel interpreted for us, we can see that the last kingdom, which is the Antichrist kingdom, which if we're talking about Bible prophecy, is still yet future, still yet near future, I believe, we can see that during this time period, during this kingdom of iron mixed with clay, there will be these beings that is grouped as they will mingle themselves with another group, men. They will mingle themselves with the seed of men. So when we piece this all together, we shouldn't be surprised that what happened in Genesis 6, Jesus tells us will happen again. And Daniel 2 shows us another picture of this last kingdom on earth before Jesus' millennial kingdom something like what was going on in Genesis will occur again. So I believe when we're painting this picture here, we're seeing a really strong stance. Biblically speaking, I'm not even showing historical evidence or anything from this. This is just all from the Bible. We're showing how the Bible itself is saying that there's something more going on in this Genesis story than meets the eye. 
So although I do believe that Genesis 6 is talking about fallen angels, there are still people that will say that, no, you're still getting it wrong. Genesis 6 is not talking about fallen angels. Genesis 6 is talking about humans. And there is this view known as the Sethite view. And there's another view which people believe to be kings, that the sons of God are kings. I don't take to that view. I don't agree with it. And I don't agree with this Sethite view. And the Sethite view is basically Adam and Eve had a child after Cain murdered Abel and the son's name was Seth. And people who believe in this view believe that Seth's descendants reproduced with Cain's offspring. So they believe that Seth's offspring or Seth himself was kind of righteous. He was a good guy, followed God. So his offspring were also good, were also righteous. And because Cain killed Abel, he was the bad guy. He was unrighteous. Because the descendants of Seth reproduced the descendants of Cain, we have this weird mix here of righteous blood and um, unrighteous blood or righteous genetics, unrighteous genetics. And because of that, we get giants. So I don't take to that view because there's nothing in the Bible that says humans reproduce and humans creates giants or creates some other species other than humans. And in fact, we can go as far as to say that God even commands us, commands humans to be fruitful and multiply. It's not a suggestion. It's a command to be fruitful and multiply. And that's what we do as humans. And we're given that commandment because we are finite beings, because we will die. So there's nothing in the Bible that says that humans reproduce humans and create some sort of hybrid genetic inferior beings half human half angel hybrids or anything like that so to me that view doesn't make sense i'm not saying that to poke fun of people that adhere to that view that's what you believe then you know so be it this isn't a salvation issue but i believe that i made a good case as to why the sons of god in genesis 6 are in fact fallen angels Another rebuttal with this fallen angel view is a passage in Matthew 22:30. Basically, Matthew 22:30 shows us a picture of the religious leaders of the time approaching Jesus and challenging him with what they believe to be a tricky question, which is a question about the resurrection, where Jesus will raise the dead back to life, which is already prophesied in the Bible. It's a Jewish idea, and it's further exemplified in the rapture. So what's going on here is that they give him a scenario where there's a wife, and she has a husband, and he dies, and they're saying that, okay, if she dies, and she gets another husband, and he dies, and so on and so forth, let's say that he has she has now multiple husbands. What happens in the resurrection, Jesus? So when they're raised, whose wife is that? Is she the wife of like the first husband? Who's, whose wife is she if she's had these multiple husbands after they've died? So he tells them that when in the resurrection, once you're resurrected, you're like the angels in heaven who aren't given or taken in marriage. So that's often used as a rebuttal against the fallen angel idea because they're saying, hey, Jesus here is saying that angels aren't married. They're not given into marriage. So how can they reproduce? But the caveat to that is that Jesus is saying that angels aren't given or taken in marriage because, of course, they're eternal beings. They don't die. So therefore, they don't have a need to reproduce and pass off their lineage. He's saying that they don't, but he's not saying they can't. And at first, this might sound like a weak rebuttal that he's saying they aren't given a marriage, but he's not saying they can't. But we really have to understand what the Bible is saying here. We know that there's a group of angels who have rebelled against God, who obviously did what they're not supposed to. And there's still a group of angels who align themselves with God, who still serve him, who are still with him. And if we look at Revelation, for example, we see that in the past, we can say that a third of the angels were kicked out of heaven. But we still have two thirds of the angels who still align themselves with God. And because of that, they're not condemned. They're not going to be judged. But there's these one third of angels that the devil deceived somehow to rebel against God. So if we have these group of angels that rebelled against God, 
why do we assume then that they'll do what God wants? Do you understand what I'm saying? So here in Matthew 22, 30, Jesus is saying that angels aren't given or taken in marriage. That's just the truth. They aren't given or taken in marriage, but he's not saying they can't reproduce. So we have those angels in heaven who will do as God commands, who will do the will of God. But of course, the angels who rebelled in the first place, that's not the will of God. So why should we assume that those angels continue to do the will of God? Because we know from verses like Ephesians 6, 12, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness and basically um, powers of spiritual wickedness. So that's what the real enemy is, Satan, his angels, and demons. So they're constantly not doing the will of God. So I should we assume from this verse that all angels are with that idea. Okay, we rebelled against God, but we'll still make sure we keep God's commandments. No, they're still rebelling against God. They're not keeping with God's commandments. They're aligning themselves against God with Satan. And with this idea, we also know that there's many places in the Bible that shows angels physically coming to the world and interacting with men. And even the Bible says that we might entertain angels unawares because they look like humans. And we see in several places in the Bible where they eat, where they are physically interact with the physical world and they're just physical beings. And it's kind of hard to grasp our mind around sometimes because when we think of angels, when we think of spiritual entities, we think of these disembodied ghosts that are kind of just levitating and floating around. But no, the Bible makes it clear that angels can take the form of man. They can be physical. They can touch humans. They can do things to interact with the physical world. So if we piece this together and take a broad look at this, why should it be strange to us that there are angels who fell, who rebelled against God, took physical form, and then reproduced with human women. So why they did that, though, I want to take a look at in the next episode, because this episode has gone on pretty long enough, so we can take a look of the why this happened in the next episode. And when we piece this together, the idea and the story of fallen angels, and why it happened, and why God saved Noah's family, we can see a more clear picture of why the flood had to happen, and give a better defense in terms of the flood story. Because oftentimes, when a skeptic presents the flood story as a rebuttal against the loving God or a rebuttal against the coherency of scripture, we can easily give a different account for it of what they're not used to. So despite the rebuttals, I do still think that fallen angels are in fact the cause of the flood in Genesis. They are in fact the sons of God mentioned in Genesis. And for those who still maybe are skeptical of that idea, some questions we need to think about is, if the um, sons of God in Genesis aren't fallen angels, then who are they? Because we can see that the king's idea doesn't really make much sense, or the human's idea with the descendants of Seth and descendants of Cain doesn't really work, because they're humans and humans, which is what we're supposed to be doing in the first place. Humans and humans are supposed to be reproducing. So if we want to say that those aren't fallen angels, then who is Jude and Second Peter talking about? Who are those angels who left their first abode and and why did Jude and Second Peter compare the flood story, compare Noah and the flood, and then compare Sodom and Gomorrah and the sexual sin with angels who fell, angels who left their first abode, angels who sinned, angels who are now chained because of their sin and waiting judgment? Why did Jude and Second Peter mention that with the angels? And also, what is Daniel 2 referring to when it says they will mingle the seeds of men? So I believe the Bible speaks for itself. I believe scripture interprets scripture and that it gives us the answer to who the fallen angels are. So again, in the next episode, we'll 
we'll talk more about this idea of fallen angels and we'll look into the history of this idea because this fallen angel idea isn't new. It's actually an idea that the early church fathers even thought about and even agreed with in scripture. So we'll take a look at the history behind that view and we'll take a look at the idea of genetics of human bloodline being corrupt and why the flood had to happen to keep the human bloodline intact and why also we can say that Noah's bloodline was pure and why God saved him and his family rather than saving anybody else or just wiping out the rest of the world. So if you enjoy this episode, definitely stick around for the next episode because we'll definitely be touching more upon these ideas. We'll be looking at the evidence, the historical evidence for it, and we'll be looking at why God saved Noah and his family and this DNA problem and what that has to do with our current time period and basically lays out the rest of the story of the Bible. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about Genesis 6, what's going on there and the flood and these fallen angels, definitely check out the link in the podcast description below. Go to my website and check out my blog article for that. And you can definitely get more details on that. And definitely hit me up on social media as well. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. So with that, that brings this episode to a close, this long episode. Uh, Hopefully the next episode won't be that long, but if it is, so be it. I like providing a lot of information I like going super in depth. So if you like that, definitely stay tuned and check out the next episode. So with that, God bless.